Join me today by turning in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, if you will. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 is our text for today. Uh, Perhaps the most well-known parable in the entire scripture, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, we are looking at. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 With God's help, if you would turn your heart and give your attention to the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We left off last week talking about the wise and the learned, uh, those from whom Jesus has hidden the things of the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus and the Father delight to show the things of the kingdom of God to those who come to him as little children. Well, today we, we turn the page and we encounter just one of those former uh, a lawyer. He's not a lawyer in the way that we typically think of the word. He's not a civil lawyer. This man is an expert in the law of God. He's an expert in divine law. So that sets the stage as he comes to the Lord Jesus. And behold, uh, he comes up to, to Christ seeking to put him to the test. And he He gives him this question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, 
His motive for asking the question, as the text makes clear to us, is insincere. But we want to be clear about the nature of the question itself. The question itself isn't a bad one. In fact, it's one of vital significance. It's a very important question. I I would venture to say that there's no more important question than a man could ever ask, and certainly ask of the Lord Jesus Christ, than the one that is set before us today. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a question every soul needs to ask. And so while the man's purposes in asking the question may rightfully be called into question, there are a number of things that he gets right uh, just by virtue of the fact that he asks it. What I mean is this. The question itself presumes that mankind finds himself in a spiritual condition where everlasting life is not his to be had just by default. Just in terms of his spiritual condition out of the womb, everlasting life, eternal life is not his to have. And of course, we know for, we know the reason for that. There's a great chasm fixed between man and God as a result of our sins. Our sins have made a separation between us and our God. We have hated God. We have forsaken the one true and living God. We have spurned him. We have gone off and served false gods. We've chosen to live for ourselves. We have not determined to love him. And there is consequently hanging over the soul of every man uh, this Great sentence of condemnation, everlasting death. Our chiefest need as men is to know what the remedy is for that spiritual plight we find ourselves in as men born under Adam, with Adam as our spiritual father. So the question that we have here isn't what is defective, but the motive that stands behind it. The motive for asking it in the first place. The lawyer wants to stand over Christ. He is hoping to to see Jesus fail. He comes to Christ full of theological pride, trying to trap him. The question may be good, but when he brings up this concern of everlasting life, That is not a burning question within his soul. It's something that he could play just theological trickster with before the Messiah. But Jesus knows this. Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so in characteristic fashion, Jesus returns the man's question with a question of his own. And the the line of questioning that Jesus offers to the man helps us to see what the issue really is, what the issue at hand is. It's a two-part question. First, he asks, what is written in the law? And just notice, church, there that Jesus points the man to Scripture. He points him to the Bible as the authority for faith and practice. 
G.K. Chesterton was once asked uh, what book he would most like to have if he ever found himself stranded on, his, on a desert island. His answer, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. So what do you need when it is life eternal that you, you're concerned with? Where do you go? Well, it's to the word of God, to the inspired word of God. Of God, and, and this man actually knew that. He knew where to go and confronted with the question. He was a good theologian, and Jesus knew that. He knew the man was an expert in the law and that he would be able to, to give the answer. He's going to be familiar with the content of the law. But what's even more important is the second part, the second half of the question that Jesus poses to the man. He says, how do you read it? In other words, what is your understanding, your interpretation, your application of that law, of what you have come to know in terms of the content of the law that has been revealed in Holy Writ. And we're going to see the man, he's able to answer the first question without any difficulty. It's the the second question that really comes under fire in, in our passage. But first look at his answer, verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six and verse five and Leviticus 19 and verse 18, a summary of the two tables of the law, the 10 commandments, love for God, love for man, love for neighbor. And what does Jesus say? He says, you have answered correctly. He got the answer right, he scored 100 on his theological exam, Jesus says, do this and you will live. So he approves of the man's answer. Do this and you will inherit the eternal life that you are asking about. It will be yours. Now, brothers and sisters, it's important that we understand what Jesus is saying here and what he is not saying. Now, let's address what he's not saying first. Jesus is not saying that salvation is something that can be earned by good works. He is not saying that if your performance measures up to a certain standard of righteousness, or if your good, way, good, good deeds somehow outweigh your bad, that you'll be found in the end to be deserving of eternal life. We know that in part because of what stands in the first place here, and the lawyer's answer, it's love. It's love for God, which, brothers and sisters, is just another way of talking about faith. Love for the Lord, a wholehearted trust in and devotion to the God of our salvation, which then in turn flows out into love for others, for our neighbors. That's what a life of faith looks like. That's the evidence of faith, not works righteousness. So we're talking about the law of love. We're talking about the evidence that we belong to Christ, the evidence of our faith. Another passage for you that underscores the the very same idea, Matthew 25. There Jesus is talking about 
uh, the final judgment when Christ will come uh, at the second coming and he will separate the, the sheep from the goats. Now, how does Christ describe the basis on which he is going, we, we are going to inherit eternal life? Matthew 25, beginning of verse 33. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Do you hear the same language that we're talking about in our text? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And you know the rest of that passage. He goes on to say that inasmuch as we have done it to the least of these, we have done it unto Christ, unto Christ himself. So basic to the transforming work of the gospel in our lives within the heart of man is love for fellow man that Jesus is able to say here, here is the basis on which you'll be judged, not as the grounds of your salvation, but as the evidence, the evidence of your faith in Christ. And really this aligns with everything that we have been seeing up until this point in our study of the book of Luke, where Jesus is constantly calling his disciples, leave all, forsake all, love me, follow me with all that you are. Yield your life to my cause for the good of the souls of men. Now, do this and you may live. This man must have to some degree felt the weight of those words because you can see his almost reflexive response there in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, what does that mean? Why does he ask that question of the Lord? Is it because he is sincerely seeking to uncover who all uh, the, the law of God truly applies to in his life? Well, no, o- of course not. He's actually trying to do the exact opposite. He's trying to see who the law doesn't apply to in his life. How small of a circle this idea of loving your neighbor encompasses what limitations he might be able to impose upon its application in his life that he might not get too uncomfortable either with where he stands, how he might uh, have already applied this in in his life, or how Christ might judge him. So the word is already beginning to do its work. He can already begin to, to see the ways in which he is falling short of the command of God, his spirit is on some level convicted of that fact, but notice the tact that he takes when faced with that reality. What, what does he do when, when faced with the awful disparity between the standard of God's righteousness, what the law requires, and where he finds himself? Well, his deceitful heart immediately gets to work 
It immediately gets to work looking for some way of looking at, it, at things so that on the one hand, he can just keep his life the way it is. He can hold on to things as it stands, remaining as it is, and then on the other, still know the hope attached to that promise, do this and you'll live. You see the way our hearts work? There's so much of us to, to identify with here, how crafty our flesh can be when we hear the scriptures wash over us and the word exposes that. The word exposes just the, the impulsive response of the flesh, something we can all identify ourselves with here. The man seeks to justify himself. In other words, he begins to look for ways that he can soften the edges of the demand, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The answer in his mind was to find a way so that he could measure up. He desired to justify himself. Now, what does self-justification look like? There are a number of ways that we go about that in our lives. Uh, first, we can look for ways to try to change the standard, uh, to try to change what God's law really means. You can try to scale back the responsibility uh, the, the, the divine law places on your life. Uh, you can say things to yourself like this, well, that doesn't really apply to me. We can begin to look for workarounds in our life. Or we can look at things from the other end. We can, we can try to grasp at ways to reinterpret our lives in a more favorable light. We, we can begin to argue with ourselves, well, we actually are meeting that standard. We actually are meeting the standard. We, we look for ways to rationalize our behavior. We tell ourselves that we have always had good intentions for doing the things that we've done or for leaving off the things that we've left undone. We reason to ourselves, well, God really knows our hearts, and that he does, brothers and sisters, uh, which is the scariest proposition a man can ever truly face if you reckon with it. But whatever the case, self-justification means trying to make oneself look better in the light of God's countenance and in the mirror of his law. It's the opposite of God's first intent for the law, which is to show us just how much we really fall short. Through the law, the Bible says, comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. God has purposed that the preaching of the law would serve to bring us to the end of ourselves and then to humble us, uh, to make us in turn cry out to him for mercy because we cannot measure up. We do not measure up. We have fallen short in so many ways. Augustine said the law bids us as we try to fulfill its righteous requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for help of grace. And this man doesn't do any of that. 
In fact, he stands proud before Christ. He chooses self-justification door number one. He looks for a way to, to change the standard. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? In other words, who really counts? Let's get into definitions here. How do you define neighbor? That's, that's really what we need to talk about here. He's a good lawyer. No offense to lawyers. But he, he's looking for loopholes in, in God's law. For most Jews, a neighbor meant fellow Jews. It meant people that were like you. Uh, there, there are just scads of sayings in early Jewish writings that say things like this. Place your bread on the grave of the righteous, but give none to sinners. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. That's the kind of thinking that had infected the heart of this man and that so easily infects our own hearts. On the one hand, he knows the word of God. This is a man who is uh, orthodox in every respect of the term, but his heart is the problem. His heart is still full of deception. And this is one of those case studies that shows us just that. It shows us just how deceptive our hearts can really be, how cunning our flesh can be, how willing we are to uh, try to outmaneuver the implication of God's word for our lives. We play mental gymnastics with what it really means for us. And when push comes to, to shove, we try to, to get around uh, its application and its bearing. I trust you can see here the inherent danger in having a purely theological interest in the things of God. This man is a theological professional. Do you see the potential for turning the pursuit and the love of Christ into something that is little more in the end than academic curiosity? Something where you're content to have uh, round tables and theological discussions and debates that don't actually engender love for God? Love for fellow man, for one another? Interest in God that doesn't serve to stoke the flames of love for the one who has saved you from your sin? And then in turn, for those that bear his image. What a grave contradiction there is operating in this man's heart. He has a sound knowledge of the word of God apart from any evidence of that knowledge being worked out in practical Christian living. And be wary of that danger, brothers and sisters, in your own heart and mind. Now, here comes the rub as we get to Christ's parable. Uh, Jesus says effectively, okay, so you can quote the word of God to me, but what bearing does this have on your life? Now, Jesus shows him. He tells a story about a man, a certain man, and that's all we know about him. We don't know his story, 
We don't know his beliefs. We don't know his religion. We don't know his ethnicity or anything else. He is simply a man. And so he is presented as one unable to be boxed in or categorized in any kind of way that might allow us to evaluate his merit for being on the receiving end of our love. He's just a man. That's all that we know. The lawyer has asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives him in return a nameless, faceless example of a man in need. You don't have any other data points by which you might be able to try to qualify the application of the law. All of those other ways that we typically uh, try to size people up, their wealth, their social standing, whether or not they look like us, whether or not they, they share the same kind of background as us, Jesus will not allow any of those things to be the determinative factor in the application of the word of God here. He is just a man. Now, this man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem as you may be aware, is set up on a mountain. So it doesn't matter which way you go, you are going down when you leave from that place. But going down to Jericho, you're looking at about a 3,300 foot drop in an elevation. A significant hike. It's about 17 miles long. Uh, it is a notoriously difficult and dangerous road. It is filled with uh, caves on every side. It takes you through the desert. It's the pl- perfect place where uh, bands of robbers can hide out and accost passersby. And that's exactly what happens here. He falls in among robbers. They strip and beat him. They depart. They leave him half dead. And you can see where this is headed. If you're sitting there and you're listening to Jesus tell the story, you know exactly where Jesus is going with this story. Does this man qualify as my neighbor? But that is not how Jesus tells the story. That's not how Christ tells the story. Just follow with me and, and, and I'll show you what I mean. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan all happen along this man in turn. It sounds like a, the start of a bad joke when I say it that way, I realize. But follow with me. First, you have a, a priest. Okay, so that he is the first to arrive on the scene, that presents a note of hope. He's a priest, he's a man of God. You could hardly hope for a a more uh, fortuitous event. This is someone who represents the very picture of devotion to the Lord. He has an understanding of the word. He has a a sanctified life. Uh, This is someone who served in the temple. What more could you want? And yet, what does it say? When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Next up, you have a Levite. And this is also someone who would have served at the temple. Levites were of the tribe of Levi. Uh, they're just not one of Aaron's descendants, but the same thing happens here. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And the text doesn't linger. 
The text doesn't tell us why they don't stop to help. It doesn't say why they avoided him. You just see the pattern. You have two men who are supposed to be exemplary figures. These are the, the, this is the spiritual A-team of Israel. They journey, they came, they saw, they passed by. And so it leaves us with this burning question, who is going to help? Who is going to help this man in need? Now, we have, we have taken a step down in class, moving from the priest to the Levite, and the same is going to be true with the next, but if you were a Jew listening to this parable, you might expect that a regular Jewish layman would be the next to appear in the scene. Uh, the reason for that is there is a common threefold way of representing uh, the whole uh, people of God in the Old Testament as the priests, the Levites, and the people. That is a common rhythm uh, you find in the Old Testament uh, scriptures. But that isn't the case here. It is, of course, a Samaritan that shows up someone who is despised by the Jews. And just to give you a sense of how much this was the case, uh, when the Jews were looking for something they could uh, sling at Christ, some way they, they could insult him, they said this, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That was the worst of the worst. It was the lowest of the low. And so you can imagine the surprise um, that would have come to their ears as they hear a Samaritan is next on the scene. And for uh, most Jewish listeners, they would have uh, probably thought to themselves, well, if the first two were, were uh, such a disappointment, a priest and a Levite, how much more so? Would the next prove to be the case? The, this story, as you know, has commonly come to be called the parable of the good Samaritan. That has kind of lost its punch over the, the, the centuries, especially to our ears, especially in our context. To a Jew living in the first century, these two words, uh, good and Samaritan, could not have possibly sounded more oxymoronic put together. Someone said it's something like saying gracious terrorist. And yet what does this man do? Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine, wine on, on his, his injuries that would have served to, to soothe and uh, disinfect his wounds. He sets him on his own animal. That likely would have meant this man is walking the rest of the way 
to Jericho. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him. He even goes so far as to, to open a tab, if you will, on this man's behalf. And he says, spend whatever you need. And I'm going to repay you when I come back. Whatever it takes, care for this man. Remember, this man has been robbed. He doesn't have anything to his name. He doesn't have any way of providing for himself. So there is an extravagance of mercy and compassion and generosity and hospitality that this Samaritan uh, demonstrates to this man in need. And it is cast in such sharp relief against the higher-ups of Judaism. This Samaritan has compassion. And we're not just talking about an inner feeling. We're not just talking about inner uh, feelings of love or pity. It is a love born out in works, in action, in sacrifice. He takes great pains. He spares no expense for the cause of a complete stranger, someone he doesn't know at all. So you see this this theme that's so in keeping with um, Luke's love for the idea of reversal that a Samaritan distinguishes himself from these teachers of the law, those insiders within the Jewish community. Now an outsider is portrayed as the keeper of the law, as a picture of covenant faithfulness before the Lord. Now, If you look at verse 36, Jesus turns the tables and he puts the lawyer on the defensive. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's a leading question, uh, to say the least, and the man can't quite bring himself to say the Samaritan, (laughs) but he knows the answer. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Now, church, the the thing I would especially like to call your attention to here is the shift in Christ's question here. You remember how the man seeking to justify himself says, who is my neighbor? But look at how Christ frames things now. Jesus, having told the story of this episode of of the man on the road to Jericho. Now, what question does he ask? He asks who proved to be a neighbor. He doesn't answer the question, who is your neighbor? He says, who proved to be a neighbor? Do you see the difference? You see the difference, beloved? You see the significance of this change in emphasis for our lives as well. Jesus seems to be saying something like this, rid yourself of the idea that the duty to love only extends so far. Stop asking the question, who is my neighbor? Instead, be a neighbor to all. Neighbor love the kind of love that comes first from the experience of God's love for us in Christ that then in turn flows out into love for others, that kind of love doesn't ask these kinds of questions. It doesn't make these kinds of distinctions. So Christ blows the doors off all of the, the boundaries and limitations and safeguards we erect in our lives, things that if we're honest only serve to keep us comfortable, 
They only serve to justify that internal resistance we find in our flesh to sacrifice, to sacrifice for the good of others on behalf of our neighbor. This man was asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? He should have been saying, what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be a neighbor? And Jesus answers him by saying, it is to show mercy to all as the Lord gives us opportunity. Galatians 6 and chapter 10 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You go, do likewise, just like this Samaritan. Do you want to inherit eternal life? Love the God of your salvation and love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, this is not about self or works righteousness. It's not about earning your salvation. It is about what characterizes those who put their trust in the Lord and who hope in the promise of his salvation. To return to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we find that first and greatest of all commandments, the Shema. The Lord tells Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then just several verses down, we read this. You shall, keep, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I take possession of that good land, that better country, that heavenly city Christ is preparing for us? Turn in faith and obedience to Christ. Fall on his mercy and then turn and go do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are right to want to safeguard the glory of the gospel the good news that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But let us never begin to, to think that that faith does not affect a true and lasting change in our lives. The kind of change that radically transforms how we relate to our neighbors. There is an unbreakable bond between love for God and obedience to his commands. There's an indissoluble union between love for God and love for neighbor. Let me read to you, uh, to you, if you will, from Colossians 1 and verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So bound up 
in the apprehension of God's saving love for us is love of neighbor uh, that John is able to say in his first epistle, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Let me say that again. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. They are inextricably linked. And there are many who have tried to see in this parable an elaborate allegorical connection to Christ's love for the church. And I think we can see a picture of Christ's love here. The Samaritan does to the man as Christ does to us. He reflects in his dealings with this needy man, uh, the Lord, uh, the compassionate one, one who sees us in our, in our need. Uh, Christ comes and he binds up our wounds. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord gives us a place to dwell. But Christ's fundamental lesson in this parable is clear. It's unmistakable. It is simply go and do likewise. The call is toward practical Christianity, practical displays of love for neighbor. Again, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We love others because God has first loved us. And the love that God's people show to others has no bounds. There are no limitations on that love. And we see that first preeminently in the gospel. But that in turn calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, Brothers and sisters, do we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Who is prepared to say, I know that I do? There's only one who has ever loved the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and their neighbor as their self, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is from him that we need both cleansing from all of the ways that we fall short in our failure to uphold the law of God, but also grace, empowerment to go, to go and do likewise, to love him, to love our neighbors more, as God in Christ has first loved us. Let's ask him for his help in this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in knowing you, uh, first God, we have truly been taught uh, by you how to love one another. We 
we, we have been taught, we have seen so clearly what love truly is. Lord, we marvel that your gracious, saving, redeeming, electing love has fallen on such undeserving wretches as ourselves who have not loved you. Lord, our hearts have gone astray. We have spent our lives uh, serving and living for other things, serving ourselves, bowing down before false gods. Uh, Lord, we have poured out the love that only you deserve on so many worthless things, and yet you still set your love on us. You still sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we come, Lord, asking for your grace. Not only, Lord, to love you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, help us as a as a body, Lord, we pray for your help as a church to, to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Lord, I pray that brotherly love would continue in our midst. Lord, I, I pray that we would do good to all as we have opportunity. Lord, that we would show mercy to all as the Father has shown mercy to us that we in turn would show mercy to others. And Lord, that in doing so, our, our witness as, as your body would serve to draw many to the great mercy that's found at the cross, a mercy that triumphs over judgment, a mercy that causes sinners to be born again to a living hope. God, we look to you in, in all of this, and we pray that your name would be magnified. We pray that you would transform our hearts for your name's sake. Amen.